Hello and welcome to this special edition of the BRFCS podcast. In this edition, we go back to 1971 and revisit the impact that Ken Furphy had upon Blackburn Rovers Football Club. This episode is based upon an article written by Jim Wilkinson as part of his Blue-Eyed Boy WordPress site. The site can be found at blueeyedboy.wordpress.com. When you look at a 1971 picture of Ken Furphy, you probably wouldn't think you were looking at a bloke who'd just gone 40. With his side parting, hair swept across, smart club blazer and tie, and grey flannels, you'd probably, by today's standards, have him down as mid-50s or perhaps even early 60s. But when Furphy swept into tired, dispirited, almost deserted Ewood that summer, he brought more than a dash of verve and modernity to Blackburn Rovers a club which had been spiralling downwards amidst a general air of disillusionment and indifference, and a plunge to a second relegation in five years, had a home attendance for the final academic 1970-71 second division game of just 3,971. This proud founder member of the Football League was no longer even a full member of it. Third and fourth division sides were associate members, entering the FA Cup in round one, rather than round three. I was one of those 3,971, and even at 12, I knew that a weary, ailing club needed a shake-up. Furphy certainly gave it that. You could argue he actually revolutionised the institution. Rovers had been taken down by a combination of past-their-sell-by-date management pair, Johnny Carey and Eddie Quigley. They'd swapped jobs in mid-season, with Carey, who built a fine top-flight Rovers side in the early 1960s, first brought back as the general manager, a kind of director of football role, only to replace the faltering Quigley when it was too late, as Eddie, a revered Ewood hero as a goal-scoring inside forward of the 1950s, was then shunted upstairs to administrative duties. The board men making these decisions were largely anonymous, elderly, local business successes. You never heard them speak, and you probably wouldn't recognise them if you walked past them on Richmond Terrace. But fortunately, someone had remembered the young player-manager whose 4th Division Workington side had humiliated top-flight Rovers 5-1 in an Ewood League Cup tie back in 1964. Furphy had by then promoted Watford to the 2nd Division, and he steered them on a thrilling run to an FA Cup semi-final against Chelsea in 1970. They lost that 5-1, but a 1-0 win over Liverpool at Vicarage Road in the sixth round, the winning goal scored by a player who would feature in Furphy's Ewood Odyssey, had stunned the nation at a time when the FA Cup really mattered and Bill Shankly's Liverpool were founding a dynasty. You have to understand that there was almost no platform for a second division manager in what minuscule bits of media existed back then. Two one-hour highlight shows showing maybe four of the weekend's matches was the entirety of football on TV. Local radio was barely off the ground. There wasn't even any CFAX or teletext. I honestly can't recall ever hearing the voices of Johnny Carey or Eddie Quigley, 
We might have got two minutes on football focus or on the ball in 1969 when we played Manchester City in the FA Cup, our only real high-profile game between 1966 and 1971. But suddenly, Furphy's voice, or at least his rallying and inspirationally worded cries to arms in the local press, were everywhere, and the few thousand who were ready to remain loyal in Rovers' first ever delve into Division 3 couldn't get enough of them. I vividly recall a club open day in that summer of 1971. This was a Furphy innovation which no 12-year-old boy could resist. Round about the time of the first ever Glastonbury Festival, in the month that Jim Morrison was found dead in a Paris bathtub, and George Harrison was putting together the lineup for the concert for Bangladesh, Furphy opened the gates and doors of Ewood to anyone who wanted to come and watch the players train, then meet them, and him, and collect autographs, all in the actual dressing rooms. No one had ever heard anything like it. I still have my page of signatures from that day, I was probably the first down and the last to leave. On a tactics board, Furphy demonstrated to older, more knowledgeable fans how he intended to tackle the likes of Halifax, Rochdale and Torquay United. He was mesmerising. An old mate no longer with us, Gordon Horne, who'd followed Rovers since the Second World War ended, told me some years later, I started off thinking, who's this silly bugger? By the time I came out, I was convinced he'd have us in Europe in five years. Of course, Furphy didn't, but he realised in the drab, colourless world of relegated Rovers the value of good PR. The demographic of Rovers' support over the four years that we spent in Division 3 would become much younger, and it was larger the youthful, the dreamers, the uncynical that Ken's pitch was aimed squarely towards. Rovers had lost a generation of fans. The 1960 FA Cup final fiasco had put a good many off and despite flickering brightly for a time under Carey, an accursed, woebegone relegation season in 1966 from the First Division, followed then by a series of failed and increasingly forlorn attempts to return, had seen many more jump ship. I remember my father telling me he couldn't stomach seeing some of the Third Division opposition coming to Ewood less than half a decade after the likes of Spurs, Manchester United and Liverpool had been our natural foe. Sir Furphy knew he had to catch the young and wide-eyed before they found other entertainment, and he pulled it off. He made watching even third division football seem glamorous, exciting for those not old enough to be dismissive of the prospect. At a pre-season reserve and youth game at Great Harwood in midweek before the season's opener, legend has it he asked the youth coach in charge who the two lads in midfield were, the boy with the long dark hair and the redhead who'd caught the eye. MacDonald and Bradford came the reply. Well, whip them off and get the two subs on, Furphy's alleged to have said. They're playing on Saturday. Sure enough, the two Tyros, who had never been near a first eleven squad, started the game as the season began with 7,901 on Ewood at home to Rotherham. Rovers won 2-0, MacDonald scoring on his debut after Eamon Rogers had opened the scoring. The other nine that day were all remnants of the relegation campaign. Furphy hadn't brought, nor been able to bring, a single player in. Yet. A mixture of promising youngsters he'd inherited, like Derek Vazakli and Tony Parks, along with old lags such as Fred Goodwin, Brian Conlon, and a handful of saleable assets such as Eamon Rogers, Billy Wilson and Alan Hunter, lost at Plymouth, then won the next home game against Wrexham. After two subsequent defeats, Furphy knew it needed surgery. How he went about it is the stuff of legend. 
Ten signings in 77 days had everyone's heads spinning in a manner that can only be compared to the first weeks of Dalglish and Harford's Jack Walker-funded recruitment in the autumn of 1991. The cultured centre-back Hunter, a Northern Ireland regular far too good for the division, was sold to Ipswich for 65000 plus Bobby Bell, also a central defender who was valued at about 15000 The Watford captain Terry Garbutt, a trusted and cultured midfield lieutenant, came in on the same day. Both made inauspicious debuts, as a Roger Hunt-inspired Bolton, another founder member who dropped down with us for the first time, cantered to a 3-0 win at Ewood. Bell played just one more game, a draw at Walsall, and was incredibly sold to Crystal Palace the next week for £50,000. This was more than just a magician's trickery. It freed up cash, buttons by today's values, but a treasure trove to Furphy, and he was then able to embark on a mad two months of wheeler dealing. Johnny Price, a remarkably diminutive ex-Clarets winger, came from Stockport County. The Danish wing-half, Ben Arentoft, a member of Newcastle's last trophy-winning side, the Fairs Cup, was also recruited. Full-back Mick Heaton, who was destined to be a stalwart servant, came in from Sheffield United, along with the Wolves' midfield man, Jerry Farrell. Not that everything was going smoothly, Much of this activity took place during a run of seven games without a win. That run even extended to one win out of twelve, and Rovers hovered perilously close to an unthinkable descent to the bottom league. The Nadir was undoubtedly a 7-1 defeat at Gay Meadow, when peerless goalkeeper Roger Jones had to be replaced by the centre-forward Don Martin, and Shrewsbury Town yeoman Alf Wood helped himself to a nap hand. Undoubtedly today, there would be angry calls for a manager's head with just three wins and three draws from the opening 17 games. But I'll be honest, you barely noticed the results as you awaited your evening telegraph for news of the next signing, and what signings the next few were. Tony Field, aged 25, had been kicking around the lower leagues and scoring goals for years with prosaic names like Halifax Town, Barrow and Southport, from whom Rovers signed him for £17,500. Field was destined to become the talisman hero of the terraces, scorer of some of the most wondrous goals I've ever seen by a Rovers player. He didn't do tap-ins. Good-looking, bearded and cold-eyed in his finishing, he could have played a silent Mexican assassin in a spaghetti western. A week later, the less extravagantly gifted Barry Endine, scorer of that Watford winner against Liverpool, arrived from Charlton. With the increasingly bored Eamon Rodgers, initially hailed by Furphy as potential king of this division, moving south in part exchange. But things had barely improved a month later. In late November, Furphy found the last and most vital piece of what looked like a randomly assembled crazy paving, but turned out to be his jigsaw, playing out his career in Newcastle United's reserves. With a trip to Tranmere Rovers on Friday night to come, this team needed a colossus and a commander. When Bill Shankly signed Ron Yates, Dundee United's centre-half for Liverpool in 1960, It's said he used to stand him in a room and invite journalists to take a walk around him. So immense was his stature, and so considerable his presence. John McNamee was Ken Furphy's Ron Yates. Far from the first flush of youth at 30 when he signed for Rovers in November 71, his influence on the team was far greater than his individual ability or particular defensive contribution to it. The former Celtic and Hibs man had enjoyed some success at Newcastle in a five-year spell. With Ben Arentoft, he'd been part of the Joe Harvey side which beat Wiespest Dosha in a thrilling two-leg Fairs Cup, which would later, of course, become the UEFA Cup. It remains the Magpies' last major trophy. Ravaged by injuries and scars of combat, 
he was getting a bit long in the tooth to cope with the first division forwards, and many questioned Furphy's wisdom in acquiring a damaged old journeyman to partner the youthful but highly promising Derek Fazakale. This was after trying the likes of the soon-to-be-sold Bell, the weary old striker Brian Gonlan, the game but limited Terry Eccles, and another kid Mick Wood, but they'd all proved unsatisfactory as results worsened. McNamee's debut came on a Friday night at Prenton Park, beloved of the Wirral Punks half-men half-biscuit. On the same day, the band Yes, they of Accringtonian lead singer John Anderson fame, released their album Fragile, possibly the LP title least applicable to John McNamee in the entire lexicon of rock and pop. Those who were born too late to witness 1970s football would wince at the sheer brutality of the spectacle and the leniency of the officials. McNamee would probably struggle to finish a game today. Tackles, which today would be straight red cards, were commonplace, but seldom then were even called as free kicks. Bookings were rare. To be sent off, you more or less had to commit an offence equivalent to grievous bodily harm. McNamee was an undoubted practitioner of the darkest of these arts. In a day when attackers rarely rolled or dived around unless actual limbs were broken, for fear of being branded a big girl's blouse, or a great Mary Ellen, sometimes by their own teammates, and fans who would more commonly urge them to damn well get up and get on with it. Many forwards, however, devised a cunning method to avoid McNamee's extreme crudities. They simply kept as far away from him as bloody well possible, often practically reinventing the hungry 1953 deep-lying striker role to keep out of his orbit. This was obviously a benefit to the team, and the giant veteran was able to use the saved breath to instruct his young partner, Faz, on how to deal with his man should he prove willing to enter the death zone. Not only was McNamee a fearsome prospect to the opposition, he was the kind of character no teammate would want to share a dressing room with after 45 or 90 minutes if he had left anything on the field or shirked your duties. While the purists might have thought McNamee a bit of an animal, his relish for the scrap and will to win by whatever methods spread rapidly through would have been a damaged, flimsy outfit, coming to terms with life in the lower leagues. Tranmere Rovers were dispatched 3-1, despite the inclusion of the formidable Yates amongst their number and results improved by some measure, although after the woeful start, not by enough to finish any higher than a barely respectable tenth in Rovers' first season in the third flight. At Halifax Town on the 27th of December, McNamee scored the only goal of the game which is still remembered, not only for the manner in which he bundled Ball, several colleagues, half the Halifax defence, keeper and possibly even the referee into the back of the net, which promptly collapsed, but also for a lengthy floodlight failure, which he also was possibly responsible for. A witty stadium DJ put on Deep Purple's Black Knight as darkness enveloped the ground. Nobody stood below a row of corporation buses parked atop a slag heap at one open end of the shay for fear that McNamee's sheer presence and seismic challenges might precipitate a landslide. There were embarrassments that present-day fans would find hard to imagine. Defeats at Torquay, Mansfield and Rochdale. But the flamboyant field scored 17 in 33 and gates held steady around the 7,000 mark. But there was nothing in the kitty for any furphy deadline swoops. On one April night, McNamee scored one of the most remarkable goals I've ever seen at Ewood. Shuffling back to the halfway line after attempts to cause Mayhem at a corner came to nothing, McNamee was alerted by a colleague to the fact that Brighton's keeper was taking the goal kick quickly, 
in an attempt to bypass his lumbering return to duty. Big Mac turned around in the centre circle, and seeing in an instant that the ball was landing on the bounce where he was stood, he unceremoniously, with the minimum of back left, half-followed it back, like a shell from a tank past the astonished goalkeeper, and it virtually burst the Darwin end net on the full, never having gone above head height for all of the 50 yards it travelled in a microsecond. Who cared if the 1950s and 1960s good times of Dougie, Ronnie and Fred Pick were over? These were the 1970s. These were our heroes. I was young and loving the freedom of being able to travel away with my school pals on the Ribblesdale coaches for the first time. The 51st coach to arrive at Spotland we were on. We counted them walking by after we parked up. We had our own heroes now. We travelled away, cocky, confident, enjoying the new experience of outnumbering the home fans on grounds that you could pretty well walk round all four sides of. We thought we were a pretty big fish in a little pool. Tony Field's wonder goals, Johnny Price's improbable 35-yarders, a team improving all the time and entertaining us royally. Furphy had made football fun and supporting Rovers a source of pride and camaraderie again. Promotion was surely only a matter of time. Rovers fans know only too well that having a strong end to one season doesn't necessarily mean great things for the one following, and so it proved again in the glam rock autumn of 1972, as any optimism engendered towards the end of Furphy's first campaign all but evaporated. While Ziggy played guitar, Rovers played abysmally, and after flirting with the bottom four a year before, the illustrious name of Blackburn Rovers was for the first time to be found at the very foot of the third division table. Furphy's summer transfer activity had been limited to the acquisition of Don Hutchins, a rather disappointing left-winger from Plymouth. Beginning the season with what would become a regular experience, a thrashing at the hands of 1970s nemesis Bristol Rovers, Furphy's team, not helped by a glut of injuries, contrived to lose at home to Rochdale and exit the League Cup. Then a draw against the same neighbours at Ewood in the league three days later, with even fewer turning up for the league match than the Cup embarrassment. A thrashing at Brentford saw Furphy's eye taken by the bees bustling centre-forward, whose name he duly noted. A win at Oldham brought temporary respite, but yet more new faces. Brighton forward Kit Napier, a veteran of Furphy's 1964 Workington side, and his Albion teammate, the less gifted midfielder Dave Turner, were unable to make an instant impact, as for the second year running, Bolton romped it 3-0 at Ewood. Rovers returned to Gay Meadow, came away beaten, albeit less spectacularly than a year previously. McNamee, Hutchins, Endine, Stuart Metcalf all had spells out with injury and Furphy needed a fresh face to excite the fans and end a goal famine, which had seen Rovers find the net just three times in eight outings. He then splashed out on the man who had so impressed him at Griffin Park, John O'Mara. Although Furphy parted with £30,000, a far from inconsiderable amount for the club at that time, and was said to have beaten off competition from clubs in higher divisions, the six-foot-three-inch Farmworth-born O'Mara, aged 25 when he arrived, flattered to deceive initially, and the manager's last ever cash buy at Ewood went down in history as a costly flop. Braces for O'Mara in his second and third home games brought comfortable wins against Plymouth and Scunthorpe, but after eight away games, the team had just a win at Oldham and a draw at Wrexham to show for their travels. After 14 games, Rovers had won three and drawn three, alarming statistics comparable with Furphy's debut season, when he had at least had the excuse that he was juggling the personnel around. 
A run of form was needed to save his job, and more importantly save Rovers from the ignominy of famed founder member of the Football League dropping into the abyss of the 4th Division. As so often, such a run had modest beginnings as an own goal and a Tony Field strike earned a two-all draw before barely 3,000 souls at Vetchfield, Swansea. Not many more were turning out at Ewood as enthusiasm was on the wane. Furphy's always positive and evangelical rhetoric had begun to leave a few wondering if there was actually any substance behind it. Less than 6,000 came to see Walsall beaten 2-0 the week after, but Rovers were able to gain some momentum in three consecutive home games, O'Mara making it six goals in his first five Ewood appearances, as Charlton 2 were beaten and Grimsby forced a stalemate. The elusive second away win came at Plymouth, courtesy of an own goal from a future Rovers manager, Bobby Saxton, and Rovers continued the run into mid-March, unbeaten in what was then a club record 19 league matches. Field scored the winner at Spotland, and the Rochdale bogey was ended after three consecutive failures to beat the men over Thad Betts. Crewe had put Rovers out of the FA Cup at Ewood in the first round, former Blue Alan Bradshaw enjoying his return, but there was even an outrageous slice of fortune when Chesterfield, 2-1 winners at Ewood on Boxing Day, were found not to have registered goalkeeper Jim Brown in time. The match was scrubbed from the records and was ordered to be replayed. Field was in imperious goal-scoring form, and Tony Parks' longest run in the side to date saw him firmly established as a vital component of the engine room making up for the lengthy absence of the cultured Captain Garbutt and the indifferent form and injury of Don Martin, who was not an automatic furphy pick. When Bristol Rovers played out a 0-0 draw at Ewood in February 1973, a healthy 12,378 turned up, the first five-figure home gate since Aston Villa had visited a year previously. After four successive away wins which had banished all members of the godforsaken start, Rovers, on the brink of one of only two promotion places back then, lost at Port Vale, and then even more painfully, contrived to lose the replayed Chesterfield game 1-0 on a midweek night at Ewood. Jim Brown, it goes without saying, was outstanding, this time legally installed as the Spyrites number one. A hammering by John Bonds Bournemouth made it three losses out of four, but within the space of four days in late March, Furphy's team beat Charlton at the Valley before pulling off an epic 1-0 win at Bolton. Derek Fazakler's winner halting the runaway leaders in front of an incredible Burnham Park gate of 33,309. Careless draws at home to Tranmere and away at Halifax were followed by a revenge win at home over Bournemouth and another Ewood success against Rotherham as Barry Endine, now known as Dumper after he had appeared in court concerning the, shall we say, borrowing of a truck from a building site, finally recaptured the goal-scoring form of his Watford glory days. With three games remaining, Rovers really needed to win 24 hours later at Meadow Lane on Easter Saturday in order to pip Notts County to the runners-up spot on automatic promotion. But despite having chances, the game, which ended goalless before 22,712, is best remembered for one of the greatest saves ever by a Rovers goalkeeper when Roger Jones somehow kept out a Les Brad header, which looked certain to decide the game. Two more tame draws ended the season, Rovers and Oldham cancelling each other out on the final day, as both hoped to take advantage of any county slip. It was McNamee's final appearance, and the healthy Ewood gate for what might have been a decisive derby of 14,346 emphasised that Furphy had, as well as piloting the site agonisingly close, third, remember, two points behind Notts County, 
to a return to the second division, the charismatic manager had rekindled a good deal of interest amongst the Blackburn public. A few days later, after lamenting the final position of third, it was announced that three teams would go up automatically in subsequent years. The question was, did Furphy have the remaining zeal and conviction to claim one of those three spots? Ken Furphy was destined to leave part way through his third Ewood season, and whilst there were promising signs when he departed, his successor actually moved on many of the players he brought into the team to get Rovers promoted a full 16 months later. Furphy began 1973-4 season handicapped by a rash of suspensions, carried over from the season before, which had seen the team finish agonisingly close in the final season of two up, two down. An opening day home win at home to Southend saw the ever-willing but limited ND notch the winner, and I'm almost certain that another of Furphy's successors, Donald Scrimmager Mackay, was in goal for the Shrimps that day before a reasonably healthy crowd of 8,684. But it was the away form which was as ever Rover's weakness. Away travel was often arduous and plagued by coach breakdowns in those days, if the relative luxury of a special train or the customised football league league liner, luxurious until rampaging 70s hooligans pulled them to bits, that is, weren't available. Longer journeys began, barely believably, at 11 o'clock on a Friday night from Blackburn Boulevard, in order to give coach drivers the requisite number of hours rest before beginning a return leg. You'd get home 24 hours later, if you were lucky. Furphy's travelling army would often be unleashed on an unsuspecting southern town on a Saturday morning if the bone shakers had made it down without a lengthy freezing stop on the wilderness of some far-flung hard shoulder. You could almost guarantee three or four breakdowns a season, and you were usually grateful to be back from anywhere while Bussy's home was still running. So defeats at Hereford, Charlton, Chesterfield, Walsall, Grimsby in the August and September, conceding 14 goals into the bargain, did not augur well. With McNamee moved on, the defence lacked his experience and motivational qualities. The money had run out for Furphy, and his last cash buy had been the hapless John O'Mara a year earlier. The man who'd worked magic two years before to make an instant profit on Bobby Bell, and who generated funds by selling Graham Mosley, an unblooded third-choice keeper to Brighton for a decent fee, now had his hands tied. Beset by defensive problems and admitting failure in trying the unconvincing Don Martin as a stopper, after the 4-2 Grimsby defeat, he gave a debut to former St Mary's college lad who'd failed to make the grade with Liverpool and had kicked about in non-league football with his hometown club, Darwin. It was John Waddington who formed a useful and youthful partnership with the dependable Fasakali. Results improved immediately. Rovers went out to the League Cup to Orient, however, after winning a two-legger against Southport, with the marvellous field scoring in both games against his former club. But the league form was splendid. O'Mara even enjoyed a brief revival and a local youngster introduced at the back end of the previous campaign, a signing from Great Harwood by the name of John Kenyon, notched his first couple of league goals. Field scored both in a win at Bournemouth, with whom Rovers had established quite a rivalry under John Bond, and on the 17th of November 1973, just a couple of days after Princess Anne married Mark Phillips, and an unknown support band named Queen stunned a King George's Hall audience who had come to see Mott the Hoople. Watford were the visitors to Ewood. They were a decent side, and it was rumoured that the famed director Elton John might be at Ewood that day. If he was, he saw the performance which probably most perfectly encapsulated the furphy years at Ewood. Rovers turned in a faultless display, illuminated by a nap hand of brilliant goals. One of Fields is still talked about today, 
as a dribbling, jinking, magnificently finished effort to rank with golden moments provided by Brian Douglas and Mike Ferguson in the decades before. Parks, Field with two, Barry Endian and Stuart Metcalf were the scorers, and it seemed finally after a nine-game unbeaten run in the league that the jigsaw might finally be complete. The team that day was Jones, Heaton, Arentoft, Garbutt, Waddington for Zachley, Napier, Metcalf, Endine, Parks and Field. It's interesting that it looks pretty much a wingless wonders type of lineup, although Kit Napier could operate wide. It also stands out that just six of the side, Jones, Heaton, Waddington, for Zachley, Parks and Metcalf, survived into Gordon Lee's promotion season. No one knew at the time, but the Watford game was Furphy's final league match for Rovers. He took his team to County Durham Mining Village Withington and was relieved to see them draw in a fraught FA Cup tie, 0-0. With the weather worsening, the replay and subsequently rescheduled league match were postponed, and with the three-day week power cuts biting, Furphy sent his final team out at Ewood for the Cup rematch on a Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock. Through circumstances which never became entirely clear, the heating at my school, St Mary's College, was rendered inoperative at midday. Rumour has it by a couple of Rover-supporting teachers who were quite handy at DIY, and virtually every football fan in the place decamped to Ewood for the afternoon. Willington were dispatched 6-1, Field, John O'Mara with another two, Garbutt, Napier and Parks on target. But on Friday, Furphy tendered his resignation to join top-flight Sheffield United. Caretaker manager Richard Dinnis extended the run to 10 league games, but when Gordon Lee took over six weeks later, momentum had been lost. Furphy soon came back to sign his ever-trusted lieutenant Garbutt, and inevitably, around deadline time as it was back then, he broke the hearts of every Rover supporter by taking the worship Tony Field to Bramall Lane. Rovers were in no position to reject any substantial bids, and were singularly unable to offer anything to complete with top-flight soccer. In the summer, his last piece of business with Rovers kind of summed up his maverick, mischievous ways. After the player had starred in a win at Bradford City in his first season, Furphy had predicted that David Bradford, who he'd plucked from the youth team for a debut in his first match in charge, would become Britain's first £1 million footballer. With Rovers, as ever, desperate for cash, they accepted the Blades' offer of £60,000. Furphy, who'd made a £35,000 profit on Bobby Bell in a fortnight, you could argue then had got a 940000 discount on his man. He had his moments at Sheffield United, did Ken. I remember being thrilled that a 3-1 win at Spurs was a match of the day as Tony Field scored twice. Field, Garbutt and Bradford eventually followed him to the USA, where they found themselves playing with and against the likes of Pelé, Cruyff and Beckenbauer. In later years, I came across him summarising for the BBC in Devon at games. At the end of the day, as they say in football, he won us no honours, and the side didn't manage to get the elusive promotion until Gordon Lee had had a year to change the character and the personnel around. But he was of his time, and he was like a breath of fresh air at Ewood, a one-man revolution at a time of monochrome depression around the old ground. And for that, Ken Furphy will always be remembered. That was Furphy's Ewood Odyssey by Jim Wilkinson, which can be seen in print at the blueeyedboy.wordpress.com website. Our thanks to Jim for allowing us to reproduce the article in this way.
All music used in this episode was sourced from www.bensound.com.